Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, the doctor is in the house, Dr. Nirman Mahanti. How are you, Doc? Good day, Captain. I'm, I'm very good. Very uh, good. I like that. Mm-hmm. You're not often very good. Sometimes you could be better. Very good's good. I'm like um, you. Do you want me to be awesome? Like, do you think I'm not I'm no, no, I love less it. than very good? Or I, I'm just worried that sometimes you say I could be better. And I, I think oh, I, I, I want you to be know, happier than that. Yeah, but like I could be better is my way of saying, like, you know, um, there's, you, I Always could be better is, is, is a way of saying tomorrow can be better than today. I like it. Okay, okay nice. Right. Always look on the bright side. Yeah, always, always looking towards tomorrow. There you go. I like that. Let's go with that. Mate, let's go with that and let's get into our mailbag. We've got a very full mailbag because, as our listeners, I was off for a couple of weeks and we pre-recorded some of these. The good news is the postman has been busy. We have a very, very, very full and long <laughs> list of mailbag questions. So what do you reckon? Should we get into it? Let's do that. All right. First one is from Dan and Michelle. G'day, Scott and Doc. Long-time listener of the pod and absolutely love and appreciate all the great work you both do. It's very kind. Thank you. Dan says, I've recently got my girlfriend hooked in and she posed this question. And I love this question, mate. In terms of stocks that do well due to demand in China, for example, treasury wines, should we be wary buying these stocks due to the tensions between China and Australia or the US? And you just say, look, this isn't supposed to sound xenophobic or racist, so apologies if it comes across that way. I understand if you don't want to read it out for a mailbag. It would be good if, it'd be good to know if it's a legit question, though. Dan, it is a legit question, mate. It's a very, very fair one. There's nothing racist or xenophobic about it at all because this is a geopolitical issue that, frankly, wouldn't matter what colour or race the individual people were, the simple reality here is there are some big boys and girls, but mostly boys because our blokes didn't screw these things up, in charge of some of the world's biggest economies and they are butting heads in a... Relatively unprecedented way. I think you got to go back to the 80s, to the US and Russia, um, or the USSR as it was, before we see something like this. So, no, mate, perfect question to ask. You should always feel like you can ask those questions, and as always, we'll take them in the spirit they're intended. So I appreciate the the, the concern, uh, but you've absolutely, no, Michelle's absolutely nailed it. Really good question, Michelle. I don't want to give Dan too much credit here, because Dan's a good bloke, but it sounds like Michelle's uh, <laughs> come up with a question. So, Doc, that's, that's a question we get a lot, right? We mm. get people saying, okay, so I get that China's a big market, one point something billion people, Australian companies are trying to do well there. Some have done it well already. Some still trying. Some have gone and failed. But is the geopolitical drama something that we should be concerned about as investors? Um, like here's the thing. So geopolitical dramas are always existent. Yep. Um, you know, there's always some oil crisis, some war <laughs> going on. Right. I mean, and if there's nothing, then there's coronavirus. Um, <laughs> so I mean, I mean, the reality is, we can't expect. Uh, things to be smooth sailing with no problems, right? right? There's always some problem. And if there was no problems, then politicians would have no work to do because yeah. there's <laughs> got to be some problem for them to address. Yeah. So that's my very cynical view of uh, geopolitics. Right. So so that's that. Um, now, there is some real risk, right? Mm. So the real risk is, you know, the big boys are fighting and the small <laughs> boys get caught uh, in a mill and, and become collateral damage. That is always a poss- possibility because right. it's easier to punish um, the, the smaller players, right? Yeah. I mean, than to punish the bigger yeah, players. Exactly. So, uh, and and you can. And it sends a message, right? And it sends a message. You inflict yeah. damage to the big boys by basically hitting out at allies and things like that. Yeah. That too can happen. Uh, I think a pragmatic view is important. So, like, here's the way to answer that. Do, do, do we? Do, 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 so wine, for example, is a consumer good? Yes. 
if it's a consumer good and it's basically driven by consumer demand yeah um if consumers believe that australian wine is good to have or or other wine for example then they're going to have that right, right? And we have seen China though put the brakes on wine imports into the country from time to time. Well, they've done the same with coal. I mean, to your point, that would be true in most democracies. But China's kind of a bit of a special case, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But but I mean, here's I mean, even in even in China, I would like to believe, and yeah. I might be wrong, is the consumer demand. Like I mean, if if consumers want a certain thing, and you know, maybe some certain goods are replaceable. If they want something yeah. and you don't give it to them, that's going to cause more problems than just giving it to them, <laughs> right. right? I mean, right. Mm, do you really want to control that? <laughs> you know, you want to probably control something else, right? Yeah. If you if you want if you if your government wants to control something, wine probably is lower down your list. Right. Um, so that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, maybe point. it's a cavalier way of looking at it, but maybe that's one way to look at it. Yep. The other thing to realize is uh, that. It's an opportunity as well, right? I mean, it's a big market, so it's a big opportunity. And yep. uh, if we get scared away by every geopolitical risk, then we are not going to be taking advantage of big markets, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. to give an example, another example might be, well, okay, there's an Indian market and it's, you know, a democracy and therefore, yeah. you know, uh, probably more stable market to go after. But it's, it's a hard market to crack because there are every emerging market in one way or the other is a hard market to crack yeah. because there's a lot of things that are different from a Western, uh, you know, an OECD type of market, mm-hmm. right? And therefore, it takes time for companies to, mar- you know, even things, companies would think that, you know, Thailand, which would be somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. uh, between uh, China and India, it, it, it's, it's a difficult market to crack because, it, again, things are different. So I think I look at these. So, you know, to me, one way to think about this is to think about risk. Yeah. And, and if growth of growth, the X factor for growth is reliant on China, well, on, then one way to think about this is just you assume that's a higher risk stock, yeah, okay, uh, higher risk holding for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And, and and maybe you need to look at other things to balance that risk. You know, you say for that higher risk, maybe you demand higher returns. Yeah. And, and that's the way. I mean, I, it's not, I will be out of it because if, if I have to be out of all the stocks that have China exposure, I'll be probably had nothing, right? Because every yeah. stock, yeah, in, right, exactly, yeah. in some way or the other, yeah. has China exposure. China, yeah, because yeah, yeah. whether it's coal, even if yeah. I hate coal, yeah. and or iron ore or Apple phones, right, right, right. Like I mean, everybody's got exposure. Yeah, it's yeah. a big market, right? Yeah, so yeah. It's, you can't ignore it. Um, so I think just be cognizant of the risk. Yeah, I like that last point actually. Say. Particularly, you think about you know Apple and Nike both had sales dramas for prime time yeah, in Asia. You do you want not own Apple? Probably, you know, it's a Tough yeah. is not to own a stock. I'm going to agree with that, Doc. I think, Dan and Michelle, there's probably a couple of things. So first I'd say, Doctor made the point, there's always something, there's always a risk, right? And we massively overstate the one or two that are the front of our minds. And it, it, I, I've done this laundry list before and it kind of, I feel like I'm overdoing it, but I always keep doing it because it, it's really relevant, right? It, there wasn't that long ago. Remember, so Doc, it was, remember that China hard landing? And there was Grexit, and then there was Brexit. Maybe the order's actually out of order, whatever it was. Um, there's always something to be scared of next time. And the thing is that the media and, and investors, we kind of only do one scare at a time. We kind of say, okay, well, it's China this year or this month. And nothing else could talk about. And then we'll talk about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing as if they're mutually exclusive, as if there's only one risk in confront companies at any one point in time. And I'm not, I'm not bagging down to Michelle, by the way, for being worried about it. But I do want to say, you know, to you, as a point you made, mate, which is keep it in context, keep understanding there are other risks anyway. Now, should you take a risk just because you know it's there, it would be very reasonable to say, I don't want to do it because I don't want to be exposed to the China geopolitical risk. But again, as Doc's made the point already, so I own Treasury for, to be really, really clear and upfront. Um, 
wine sales were growing at 40% per annum before COVID to China from Australia, right? 20% volume plus 20% price growth. Now let's add halves. If I get 20% for 10 years, I'm pretty happy. I'm going to make a fortune with, with Treasury if it happens. Now, if it goes back to 30 or 40, then there's even more upside there. And the penetration of wine in China is still so incredibly low from outside China. It's just the, the, the raw potential of that market is, is massive. Now, I still could be wrong about Treasury for a million reasons. The other thing about the geopolitics is let's say let's say sales halve for six months. A bit like COVID itself, right? Let's say, let's say wine sales halve for six months because China puts some export controls or import controls in place. Fine. When it goes back to normal in a year's time and then two years and five years and 10 years out, again, if I'm right, that'll be a hiccup and a, a speed bump. The share might even you know, fall because of it. But long-term, if the long-term story is right, the short-term risks are not going to play out as much. So I think that's, that's really important. Last thing I want to very quickly say, just to, to your point, Doc, you say you should want a higher return. And people say, well, of course, I'd have a higher return in every stock if I could get it. What you're really implying there, mate, is that you think you need to allow for, I'll use the phrase you may want to change it, but margin of safety, right? So you need to make sure that if there's more risk and you want a higher return, the way to get a higher return is to basically pay a lower price relative to what you think a stock is worth. And so we, you know, demanding a higher return is kind of our shorthand way as an industry of saying you've got to pay a cheaper price relative to where you expect the future to be. Is that is that a fair summary of what you meant? Yeah, yeah. So like, I mean, you know, if, if you're normally happy with a stock being, you know, doublings every five years yeah, yeah. you know you're probably expecting you you should be expecting a little bit more right uh, and if you don't think it's worth it then you don't buy it because the risk yeah, is too high yeah the i mean the other thing i think you know you've already hit this you know this nail very well i mean the so you think about the positive returns and the the thing that people actually don't think about and the, uh, i want to clarify one thing so i think it's michelle this is a fantastic question so yeah. you know just because i'm i'm saying um that you know, invest anyways kind of thing. Yeah. It's not that I'm discounting your question. I think it's a fantastic question. It's a, it's yeah. a very important thing to think about. Um, but at the same time, I think what I'm, I'm trying to also say is this geopolitical risk is one of the risks, right? Now, the treasury thesis may not work out for any other number of reasons. Right, exactly, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And and yeah. and it may not actually have anything to do with the geopolitical <laughs> risk, right. right? So, I mean, a, a, another another thesis could be that some other, you know, wine, you could effectively say, uh, becomes commoditized and yep. somebody else builds a brand and yep. that brand becomes, or those brands or that, that, that umbrella of brands become even more important and they, you know, right. or that the French decide that they're going to sell their Bordeaux wine um, you know, for cheap and you know, treasury gets Damn so that's Frenchman. Yeah, any number of things can happen, <laughs> right, exactly. right? So, you know, the Malbacs from Argenti Argentina might become, uh, you know, uh, more prevalent compared to the um, the Shiraz from you know, South Australia, man. So, yeah, like all those things. So, why do you hate Australian wines, Doc? Well, ex well, no, Tell I, the French Argentinians to go I away. Like, I love Australian <laughs> wine. All I'm saying is, like, you know, there's the Malbec, right. there's yeah. the Bordeaux, yeah. there's you know, the Californian <laughs> wines, there's probably Canadian wine. Uh, I don't know, for all I know, there's Indian, yeah. you know, wine. Yeah called Sula um, any number of things can happen that is you know that can derail a thesis right so yeah. I mean number one the th no thesis is guaranteed yeah right, right. right. and you know when we own a stock and Scott owns the stock and of course he thinks it's going to go up That's the hope. but <laughs> But I mean, he would never say that he would never guarantee that it's going to go up. Right, exactly. And, and right. he never believes that that's there's a hundred percent guarantee that it's going to go up. That's right. Uh, and and therefore, we always are operating with uncertainties. And to your point, Doc, that you know, it's a risk I'm prepared to take to say that I don't. You know, it's entirely possible that the the question Michelle asks is exactly the one that derails the stock. It's also possible that it succeeds despite it, or as you yeah. said, fails for an entirely different reason different altogether. Reason. Yeah. Um, it's it's part of a consideration. There are very few risks that I would, oh, very few probably. There are a decent number. 
that I would avoid stock altogether because of, right? And I think they're generally business model related rather than specific, you know, is there a risk that this thing happens? Yeah. Now, if it's a likelihood, of course, you don't do it. And if it's a likelihood of permanent damage, you don't do it. But if it's a kind of glancing blow on the way to something better, yeah. or it's simply one of a list of risks. Every, every time we do a recommendation on Motley Fool, we have a risks section. Absolutely. And that says these are things that could go wrong. And people sometimes say to us, well, you put it in the risk section. Why did you do it? I said, well, because, you know, the risk comes to pass. And this is because we knew that was possible by definition. If it was, if everything was certain, you wouldn't, you wouldn't make any money in shares because nothing would ever be cheap enough to buy because everyone would already know that these things couldn't happen. The fact they can happen is exactly the point. So what we say is, we know these are risks we will buy anyway because we think on average across a diversified portfolio, most of those risks won't come to pass. We also think some absolutely will. We just don't know which ones are which. I want to say only one more thing. Shoot. I love that question. Good question. All right. We got a question. We got a question from Alano, I think it is. Um, Hi, Scott and Doc. Love your podcast. You guys are doing a fab job in giving investment advice for the general public. Since I started listening to you guys, I've modified my portfolio from only speculative stocks to now spread it across funds and ETFs, medium to long-term stocks based on strong enterprises, short-term speculative stocks, and cash for new opportunities, all having one quarter of the total. That's interesting. I'm trying to minimize the risk as much as possible, but still aiming for some good gains in the short term. I'd love to hear your opinion on AMA Group and Medibio. On AMA, he says, I purchased this stock considering it was reasonably cheap and we were coming out of this pandemic with a potential gains of more than 100% in the short to mid term. Not sure if I should hold them for a bit longer or sell now. And Medibio says, I have had this stock for nearly a year and doesn't seem to go anywhere. Not sure if there's a potential for the share price to scale up or should I sell? Keep up the good work, fellas. Really good questions, Doc. I know a little bit about AMA. I know nothing about Medibio, but I have some thoughts on the general approach. Do you want to talk about any of those companies before we go on to the you know, board I was gonna, question? I was going to basically pass saying that, you know, <laughs> I have no idea of what Medibio does and I really don't want to talk much about AMA group. So I thought you you should answer the question. <laughs> so AMA is a smash repairer. Um, they've had a... They did a pretty good job for quite a few years of acquiring and building a network of, of repairers, which was going reasonably well for a decent period of time. Uh, the share price in recent times hasn't done anywhere near as well as it might have, or at least what the shells would have hoped. So I understand the, the concern or the question about what's going on with that with that company. It's uh, So here's the thing. I... Uh, it, I mean, it's fallen by about two-thirds, by the way, in about a year. Here's the thing. I understand the concern. I think, well, probably... Either A, you're trying to do the wrong thing, or B, you're asking the wrong people. It's really honestly my answer. So here's the question, right? Um, he says, I purchased the stock considering it was reasonably cheap with potential gains of 100% plus in the short to midterm. Now, I've got to say, I never, ever, ever have short to midterm expectations of any company I own ever. Never have, never will, because I don't think it's possible, right? Short to midterm, what you're really hoping is that either there's some some massively fantastic return results that the market's not expecting, also, how the market changes its mind in the mid to short term in a way you can see, but no one else can see yet. And they're all of a sudden going to see suddenly, and all of a sudden, all your dreams are going to come to come to fruition. Now, that's possible, right? It's possible in some cases there are some short-term catalysts, and you genuinely do see something different to the rest of the market. I don't know what that might be for AMA, I have to say. I don't think it's a business that has the ability to be such... I mean, you're a smash repair. I don't know how it goes from you know market hating to market loving all of a sudden. Now, could it happen? Of course it could. Um, it could halve as much as double, right? By definition, just short to midterm is much more about sentiment than about results, generally speaking. So I wouldn't do it for that purpose. I haven't looked at AMA recently, but I have to say it's one I have been interested in in the past and certainly probably will go and have a look at at the current price because it does seem reasonably inexpensive compared to past prices. So that might be an opportunity. I noticed I made a loss recently, so that might be the reason for it, by the way. 
Um, the same with Medibuy, but from different, a different perspective here. Um, again, the comment, not sure if there's a potential for the share price to scale or should I sell. The first part of that sentence was, though, I have had this stock for nearly a year and it doesn't seem to go anywhere. Um, I don't know about you, Doc. I've had plenty of stocks that have gone nowhere for very, very long periods of time. In fact, Motley Fool Share Advisor, one of our very first recommendations made by my predecessor was Vocus Communications. It went nowhere for about 18 months or two years. I can remember having a conversation with our boss and he's saying, should we just tell us not doing anything? It's not going anywhere. Um, now, it subsequently went to $9. And so having if we'd sold that early, that would have been a really, really bad mistake. Now, of course, it went badly after that $9 price. But what was happening was the business was executing on something that was going to pay off in a couple of years' time. It just hadn't yet. And while we wait for that to happen, you've got to somehow realize, again, talk about that catalyst, right? The market simply didn't believe in it because the profit hadn't been delivered yet. And so we were waiting for it to finish its infrastructure rollout and then start to sign up customers. Once the rollout's done, by the way, the costs are mostly done. Then you've got the revenue coming in after that. The business model changes really, really quickly or the results change really, really quickly, sorry. Um, and so that's that's the beauty of that model. But you have to, you had to have waited until that started to happen. It was, you know, you were literally waiting for, for better things to come. With Medibio, again, don't know the company at all, but I would say if you're expecting results within 12 months, I think that's kind of... I, so my, my view doc has always been over the first year, any of our recommendations, the odds are probably 50-50 on gains, really honestly. It's always what I've done with share advisors. I said, look, I don't know. But the reality is if I think a share is undervalued but the market doesn't, by definition, I'm the guy with a different view. And so the fact the market's going to change its mind all of a sudden in three or six months, it's not very likely. I mean, it, you know, for, for it to go from we hate this stock to, oh, no, we're wrong, we love this stock in six months to even 12 months, really, really unlikely. It just doesn't happen that frequently. And certainly... I can't guess when it's going to happen. And so I would say don't sell or buy based on a 12-month expectation. It's my personal view. And certainly if it hasn't moved in 12 months, that doesn't say that you should either sell or not sell the stock or hold or not sell, not hold the stock. Um, it's a case of is the business operating? Does that price look inexpensive relative to the business's future? If it does, then let the market come to you. Don't try and chase it down. If it doesn't, then you probably shouldn't have owned the stock in the first place. Anything else on that, mate? I have nothing to add, sir. Very, very good question. Thank you. Next question, mate, from... Oh dear. Uh, Trent, he says halfway through the message. Thanks, Trent. Um, hey, Scott, got a question for the podcast. Long-time listener, first-time questioner. We like first-time questioners, Doc. My actual name is Trent, he says. I made this account when I was quite a bit younger. I'm 19 now. Anyways, I started investing through my parents when I was 16. Good man. Through my saved-up birthday money. And as such, for the last nine months, I've been working at Coles and have been able to invest $12,000 more over that time. That is spectacular. Well done, mate. Um just quietly do the jump on an online compound interest calculator and put that number in and then work out between your 19 and 65 that money is almost certainly going to be worth what close to a million bucks doc maybe half a million dollars i mean that is a yeah. that is a phenomenal so mate whatever you do don't mess this up because uh you've got time on your side we generally hate our younger listeners because we're jealous of how much time they've got left um that that is an amazing amazing start mate so well done he says i've been looking into a share black earth minerals and to me, it looks like it has the potential to grow quite a lot. However, I wanted to know yours and Doc's opinion on the best things to look for in terms of indicators of future growth. Thanks for taking the time to answer this question. If I'm lucky enough, you are. Trent, congratulations and thank you. Hashtag get Doc on Reddit. Are you on Reddit, Doc? Um, no. <laughs> you're, you're under, we've, got to, we've got to fix your social quotient. No Reddit, no Instagram. You're on TikTok? No. Not on TikTok, not on Facebook? Oh, you can't argue you haven't used it. Well, I've, I've, I've got an account, but I have not you, used you have it in MySpace, years. Is there a latent MySpace account somewhere? <sighs> no. Um, <laughs> just Twitter. And the only reason I have Twitter is really I, I like following news 
and occasionally I can learn a few things by following a few people. There you um, go. And then occasionally, if I have got something to vent, I vent it out. But got to get you on Reddit, mate. Uh, get you on but Reddit. but okay, fine. I'll consider Reddit. <laughs> All right. So I don't. I don't know Black Earth Minerals. I'm tipping you don't either. I have no idea, but only I think I can say is $12,000 invested for 40 years at 10% return gives, <laughs> a, you Mate. know, results in something like $640,000. So. Close with half a mil. That's pretty awesome, right? So yeah. there you go, Trent. If you do nothing that earn the average market return, was that 40 years? Yeah. That's like 59. He's still working at that point. Throw another five years on. Okay. Let's say we, we, that's another 45. 70%. I'm going to call it a million bucks. How close do I get? Uh, Not quite. Drum roll. It's live TV uh, here. 45 years, yep, million bucks. There you go, Trent. You're on a million-dollar journey, mate. You're effectively a future millionaire already, if you don't mess this up. Uh, Black Earth Minerals, Doc. It's a business I have not, as I've not followed uh, particularly closely or read at all. Um, it's, it's, so here, here's, here's what I would say, Trent. It's 100%, has 100% owned Madagascan, Manary, and Iapera Graphite Projects. Trent, don't waste your $12,000 on graphite, please. Maybe it goes well. Maybe it goes really, really well. And good luck to you if it does. Um, I don't think you want to be investing a lot of money in a commodity provider, any commodity provider, certainly not one on the cutting edge of what might or might not be the next big thing in graphite. So um, I could be completely wrong. This could double tomorrow and you'll say, Cisco, I told you I was right. The When you say, what are you looking for? We're looking for businesses that actually have usually, hopefully, some sort of track record, some sort of traction in doing what they're doing, some ability to earn decent margins, some ability to continue to grow for years to come, uh, some record of using shareholders' capital wisely. Now, that can be long-term success or just simply allocating you know, newish capital uh, well. Uh, but you're looking for a business that really has bright long-term potential based on a view of where the company might be in five or 10 years. Now, if I don't know about, I don't know anything about this company, Trent, but Unless you think Black Earth Minerals is particularly A, great at mining graphite, B, has a very good potential of being successful in Madagascar of all places, do you think with a very strong degree of confidence that the graphite price will go up sustainably from here moving forward, that Black Earth can operate at a good cost relative to the industry, relative to its, to its price? There's a lot of things you have to assume there, right? Now, if you doctor about Apple a lot, I'm an Apple shareholder, and Doc will remind me that I should have been because it's gone up, doubled over the last year. We know what it does. We know how successful it is. We know what its customers like. We know what its technology does. We understand the broad uh, expectations of its industry, how it's going to make its money, why it's likely to continue to make more money than its competitors. All that stuff you can kind of take a reasonably good guess at. Now, it doesn't mean you always get the price right or even that you might have said that about Black uh, BlackBerry on Nokia, right? You can be wrong about these things, but there's a reason to believe and, and, a, and a, like a, a fundamentally based reason, actual evidence and stuff. You know, you can always say, well, I think graphite might go up and if it does, I'm going to make money. That's that's a possible, but it's not very likely, I don't think. So graphite was huge. It's fallen, it's gone up, it's fallen, it's gone up. Um, did we talk about a stock a couple of weeks ago that was a graphite company and I was doing something else? I think we might have. Um, it's just, it's one of those, it's one of those things that, you know, I get it. Like I, I get that if, 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 if <laughs> these things all work out well, you can make some money. The chance are, if you look at the history of junior miners in Australia or Australian listed junior miners, the results tend to be terrible. Now, I'm going to say I brought up a five-year chart of Black Earth. Uh, five years ago, Doc, shares were more than 20 cents. Now they're about four cents. So they've wiped out 80% of shareholders' capital in five years. Maybe this time it's different. Maybe this is the beginning of something wonderful. 
I would take the under on that. I don't think it's likely. Again, don't know what's going to actually happen, but I think it's a brave person who looks at that and says, this is the time to buy because it's about to turn around. Maybe it does. Maybe graphite is the next big thing. I think it's really, really unlikely. But Trent, don't let me don't let me dissuade you from investing generally. Just you know, take some of that money and look at, at businesses that actually have more sustainable, defensible, understandable businesses with better, in my view, odds of success. Doc, you have a view about uh, Black Earth or anything I just talked about? No, I don't know the company again. You've, you've hit it all. I mean, again, if it, it's probably even it's an explorer, right? It's it actually it probably is an explorer at this point. It doesn't actually seems to be. Yeah, it doesn't even produce. If it, it's an explorer, it has, doesn't even actually have anything that it's producing. Yep. Uh, you know, it's probably going to come back for more capital just to produce. Tends to. <laughs> um, and yep. then, you know, then you're you're selling a commodity. Maybe the commodity is very important. The price is going to go through the roof. But you've made too many predictions. So yeah, I don't have. Yeah. yeah, I think, look, you know, um, here's the other thing, by the way, shares outstanding. There was 29 million shares in 2017, 60 million shares in 2018, 83 million shares in 2019, right? This company keeps trying to raise cash, trying to find the next big thing, the next best thing, all that kind of good stuff. Um, yeah, again, I, so here's the thing, Trent, like I get that, you know, you think, well, it's only 3.9 cents. If it goes to 8 cents, I'll double my money, right? Or or maybe if it, if, it able, if it strikes a great fine, or maybe if the graphite price goes up, you're kind of in speculation land there, mate. And again, some it's possible, I guess, to make money doing that. So we're not going to say whether we, we know the only way to do it. What Doc and I would say is neither of us have ever owned ever owned a mining company. Have you ever owned a mining company, mate? Oh yeah, I've owned mining companies. But you have, that's right. I have owned mining companies, I and I can I can uh, <laughs> I can attest that I've actually I don't think I've ever made money from a mining company. <laughs> Or an oil company. <laughs> now that could just be my uh, very bad investing in those. Right, but right, you know, right. um, yeah, like I just the history very hard. Of, the history of those companies that are successful rarely, rarely includes a miner or a driller in the top echelon, right? BHP and Rio over time, over really long periods of time, arguably yes. Um, though I think that probably owes more to the Chinese super cycle and and operational excellence. Don't get me wrong, but um, yeah, I, I, the. the my, my, I consider view, Trent, is that there are many, many better ways to make money investing than trying to buy speculative mining companies. So, uh, and by the way, as I said, like to Doc's point, right, that 10% a year, you only have to get the market return to get a million dollars from here. Uh, don't, don't risk, in my view, don't risk blowing up 12 grand, chasing the next big winner when you kind of take it a bit slower and steadier and get, you know, let's see let's the market by 1% or 2% a year. You probably turn that million dollars into two or three million dollars by then, by the way, with a couple of percentage points of outperformance, or just get the market return and do very, very well. So, um, just set your sights a bit lower. Don't go necessarily for the big swing for the fences because if you strike out, you go back to zero. You've got a you got a potential of, of having a million dollar retirement just from the money you've got already, let alone whatever you save. Um, so I think Sloan City wins the race. By all means, go for growth companies for sure. Just just maybe ones with more a higher probability of success. Maybe I'll put it that way. All right, let's move on, mate. A question from Triso on Instagram. How good is Instagram? You love Instagram. Oh, I love Instagram. He says, cool. hey, Scotty, that interview with John Houston was incredible. It was so much fun, Doc. I love doing that interview. It's one of those ones where you just kind of go, man, I'm talking to John Houston. That's really cool. Uh, Chris says, it was great to get his honest thoughts about politics, the current economic situation, and a road to recovery that having to abide by party lines. I'm certainly going to do a lot of, bit of reading on him. A politician with a spine is a rare occurrence these days. Obviously, I'm from a rusted, rusted on ALP family. Please keep these interviews coming with the same caliber of guests and varied opinions. Keep up the great work. And yep, here it is. Hashtag get doc on Insta. So there you go. That was from Triso. And a similar one, we got a great uh, response from Scott saying, hi, Scott, great interview with John Houston. Do you have Keating in your sights for a future interview? That would be wonderful. Well, Paul, if you're listening, 
you, you have my number, you have my Twitter account, hit me up on Twitter, even email us, info at fool.com.au. Mr. Keating, if you're listening, we would love to have a chat. I'm sure our listeners would appreciate it too. And if you have a um, if you have a guest you want to hear us interview, that was real other than, it's always nice when not, people say nice things about us. Uh, but if you have a guest that you do want us to interview, you think would be interesting, drop us a line. Let us know who you think we should interview for the podcast. Look, we don't, I mean, politics are a little bit outside our, our value week at the, at the Motley Fool and certainly Motley Fool Money podcast. In this case, it was just good to hear John Houston's view as a, a former uh, party leader as, as an economist by training um, we thought it'd be an interesting combination of both the politics and, and the economy when it comes to particularly COVID but he had a, a wide range of view on a whole lot of stuff which was just lots and lots of fun so uh, thank you to Don, John Houston for talking to us and if you have any other ideas let us know what they are hit us up on the socials alright let's go away from talking about me and John Houston let's talk about Tim because Tim says great chat Scott really good insights from yourself and an ear bar. thank you mate very exciting. To have, oh, this is in response to a question. Very exciting to have my inner thoughts discussed in a public forum. As long as they're the ones that you want to have shared, Tim, rather than uh, other people's inner thoughts that perhaps don't uh, deserve the, the light of day. I have another question for the podcast, if I may. Is there an equivalent to the W8 Ben form for international jurisdictions other than the US? Say if I'm looking to invest in Tencent, which is in China, or Louis Vuitton in Europe. Cheers, Tim. And Tim, I didn't know the answer to this, so I asked the team because that's what I do, outsource my weaknesses. Um, and we, to the best of our knowledge, no, there's not. The W8 Ben is, a, is required by the US government itself. So it's not about the ASX or, or Australia saying you must fill this form out to, to invest overseas. It's the country you're investing in saying, hey, if you want to send your money our way, you need to fill out this form. So no, not, not to our knowledge. Uh, we've got a couple of guys who invest outside Australia, the Australia and the US. Uh, one of the guys in Europe in particular who said he didn't have that question and certainly... As far as I know, no requirement. That being said, some of these companies actually, might, you might be investing in their uh, ADRs, the American Depository Receipts, in the US itself, in which case you would need to fill out the form. So it's more a matter of which exchange you're buying them on or which country that exchange is domiciled in, rather than where the company itself is domiciled or any view the Australian government has. So I was going to quickly add, so Tencent uh, listed in Hong Kong. Yes. Um, you can buy it there or you can buy the ADR. Uh, on the US market yep. uh, Louis Vuitton something something it's a very long name isn't it uh, Louis, Louis Vuitton Maui Hennessy LVMH yes. yeah LVMH or Maui Hennessy I'm supposed to yeah, say yeah I have no idea what to say so <laughs> I'm not going to try I'm just going to say LVMH and you can actually buy that that ADR too on the US market or I think it's listed in France or Switzerland or somewhere like that right. you can buy it directly buy it. so there'll be a couple of different options to consider <laughs> Very good. There you go. Nice uh, nice option. So there you go. I hope that helps, Tim. Um, again, I guess unless you hate filling out forms so much you don't want to invest, uh, rest assured that someone will tell you if you have to fill out a form. So depending on the brokerage you're using, uh, they will say, hey, fill out this form if you want to buy these shares in this country. So that'll, that, don't worry about too much about not doing the right thing. The broker will let you know. All right. Question from Nick. I like this one. This is about margin loans. Mate. He says, hi, Scott. I note your and TMF's comments against margin loans. He says, but for those who already have one, with a comfortable loan to valuation ratio, do you suggest selling shares to pay it down or just stick it out? Cheers, Nick. So I'm going to assume Doc Nick has heard our thoughts and gone, oh, okay, maybe I'm taking a bit too much risk here. I should probably get rid of that margin loan. But, oh, I shouldn't have a margin loan, but I've got one. So now what do I do? Do I do I get rid of it completely? Like do, do I just do whatever I can to get rid of it or do I stick it out because I've already got it and the LVR is comfortable? Maybe just ride the wave. What do you reckon, Doc? Ooh, that's a hard one because, you know, like, again, we can't give any personal advice here, but um, it's a hard one for me because I have never done that. Right. And and, and the, the word comfortable 
varies from person to person, right? So what is the LVR level at which one is comfortable? I mean, if it's the LVR level 50%, but what happens if the stocks fall by 50%? Like, I mean, uh, a classic example would be what happened during the coronavirus uh, uh, time, right? right? right, right. I mean, the market had its (laughs) steepest steepest downfall that I think if you have recorded in history, you know, you drop 30% or 40%, 35%, in, in less than a month. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so Comfortable gets uncomfortable really com- fast. Yeah. So I would basically tr- stress test that first, number one, nice, yeah. is, you know, can I can tolerate a 50% downturn if it happens very quickly? And, and you know, would you be having a margin call at that point? And what is your backup plan? That's number yeah, one. Yeah. Number two is, I mean, if you've got a margin, you're paying margin loan and some interest on it. Is is what I am assuming is the yep. case. How much are you paying? Like, if, if you imagine that interest, though, let me know because I'd like to hear about that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, if any listeners are paying, you're paying. I've got margin loans with that interest. Yeah. Oh, what about what about uh, margin loans with no interest and no collateral requirements? I'm thinking about I'm thinking about afterpay. A buy now, pay later service for stocks that could work for me. Yeah, that's a great idea. Maybe we should just start that one. Well, how we? I don't use them. I got my money. I want to make some money out of it. So if, if I thought I got to charge the interest, I, I, would, I would take their money. I don't want to use my money. That's true. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we could go to Afterpay, do a joint venture. They put up the cash. Yeah. All of the idea. Motley Fool, buy now, pay later. I'll, that could work. Let's let's um, let's put that. That's a business yeah. idea. Who's, who's the, is it see, Nick Molnar? Is that yeah. you? Nick, Nick, if, well, I'll well, say Nick, if you're well, out there. Is it, uh, no, it's Anthony Eisen now. Anthony Eisen. Yeah, they've, Anthony? Changed, they've changed their roles. Anthony, if you're out there, I'm sure you are because we know you listen to this podcast. Yeah. Give it, hit us up, info at fool.com.au. Send us a proposal. We will we will graciously let you use the Motley Fool's name. We'll take half the joint venture. You can put up the funds, and we'll do a buy now, pay later service for stocks. Buy buy the stock now, pay it off in four equal monthly installments. Job done. What do you reckon, Doc? Oh, that sounds like a great idea. The phone's not ringing. Is it? No, it's not. No, that's partly because we're pre-recording, but also. <sighs> All right, let's get. Well, so to backtrack to this one. Yes. Um, Comfortable's definition, maybe try at least a fifty percent, you know, uh, downturn. The other thing is, what is the interest rate? Interest that's being paid. Like, if the interest is like six percent, and you're making ten percent returns, then well, you're only making four percent. That's that's not a lot, right? Um, It's still four percent more than you would make if you didn't have the loan, though, right? I mean, I'm I'm no, I'm no fan of margin loans, but at least in that scenario, it's, it's. I was not taking free money, but if I could, if I could borrow a million dollars with no margin calls, and I could, I could pay six and get ten, I'd do it tomorrow, right? If I knew that it was, it was yeah, a good but idea. but but you, but it is coming with the cost of a that you know you could make zero, right? I Correct. mean, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, yeah. Like yeah. if there was no margin the, call, the return, you, the return you're getting for the risk you're taking is yeah, is it's, yeah. If there was no margin call, I think that changes the dynamic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, or zero interest. Or zero interest, <laughs> or like, you know, if the interest rate was one percent. Yeah. Which I, I highly doubt is the case. So I mean, those are the considerations. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a good one. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a, you know, so I'd use some sort of framework like that. Yep, I agree. I um, have very little to add, Nick. Um, yeah, look, I think it's one of those. It's like people who say, "I wouldn't buy the shares, but I'm not selling them." It's like, well, which one is it? You kind of can't have both. So um, if you don't, if you think having a margin loan is a bad idea, just because you have one shouldn't change what you do, right? If if no margin loan is better than margin loan then generally speaking, um, we would suggest doing what you can to get rid of the margin loans so that you don't have a margin loan left uh, for the reason that Doc's already pointed out. So um, if you wouldn't take one up, having one is the same thing. Yes, you're foregoing future gains, but again, if you didn't have the loan, you could take one out today and get those gains. So it's like with investing, one of the great frameworks I like is imagine you had to sell all your shares tonight. What would you buy tomorrow morning? 
Same story. If you had to liquidate your entire portfolio tonight, would you take out a margin loan tomorrow morning? If the answer is no, then I reckon you've got your answer. And I think it probably should be, as Doc says, the more conservative side of likely because starting from square one is really, really, really painful. Don't do that. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Question from Ajit, mate. Hello, Scott. How are you doing? My question is to you and Doc. Now, this is a very short question, Doc, with really, really big answers. So I'm looking forward to this one. What are the most essential elements you think about while picking stocks? And I quite like this because it's a really simple question, but it gets to the heart of what makes for a good investment, what makes for a good purchase of stock, what, how do you put together a portfolio of great businesses? So, well, no, but great stocks, let's not assume it's great businesses. What are you, th- have you got like a one, two, and three kind of criteria or considerations or frameworks? How do you, how do you find the right stocks for your portfolio? Uh, I mean, that's, that's- he, he, Ajin is probably trying to get my job or something like that. He's, <laughs> he's really after my job. Um, but it is the question, right? Like for all the other the questions question, we answer. Yeah. When it comes to buying stocks, this is you know what's important. Yeah, so I think, well, so I, I can, I'll answer it a couple of different ways. In, you know, if, you, if you're thinking about my services that I work on, then there's a mandate. So my mandate really helps in narrowing my field, right? right? So if I'm working on um, extreme opportunities, which is basically a small cap, uh, you know, small cap, micro cap styled, high growth, high return, higher risk type of service. And those are things you focus on. <laughs> that, that, those are things I focus on. That really reduces the my search, scope of search, yeah, right? And, and, and once I've got the scope of search, then I can think of, other things, right? So I'm, you know, because I'm looking for high growth. Well, I yeah. need sales growth to be there, um, uh, but you know, sales growth doesn't happen magically. So you need to look at the business model, see how sustainable those sales growth numbers are. Uh, you need to think about how large the business can eventually become, because yeah, yeah. you know, you need to think about you know the the markets and how big the markets are going to be. You need to think about whether or not the business can expand into different markets. Yeah. Um, you need to think about optionality. Um, so it really comes down to business model yeah. and and the business itself at that point. But the initial screen really is based on 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 the particular type of stocks I'm looking mm. for, yeah. which really is in most cases for us, at least from uh, from a motley full service point of view, is dependent on the mandate that the service has. True, true. Right. Um, and I realize for, for an individual, there's no mandate really, yeah. right? Then you, you got to define your mandate in that sense. Like what's mm. your mandate is what is what are you comfortable with, yeah. right? Yeah. And for some people that mandate might be I want to have some, you know, uh, dividend stocks and some, you know, mid-cap growth yeah. stocks and some small-cap growth stocks. And, and if that's the case, then you're using, you have a motley mandate, which yeah. is perfectly fine. We like that. Uh, or you might decide to have a particular style or mandate that you know you want to only focus on um, maybe biotechnology because you know something about biotechnology that other people don't, and you have a particular skill set there that you can leverage. So then right. that's your mandate. Or you want to focus on technology because you have something some particular skill set in technology or some particular knowledge, you know, some domain knowledge, some expertise, comp- uh, you know, circle of competence to use um, Warren Buffett's uh, line. Mm. Leverage that, and that defines yours. So that's the way I would say, and I've just sort of, been, and below that, have highlighted how we sort of pick stocks within that mandate. So that that would be my answer. I like that, mate. Um, I'm going to talk about sort of some some facts I look for when it comes to finding the right businesses, and I think 
first I'm going to actually say kind of to the extent of what Doc said, but but a little bit differently. So I've always had a view that I want to fish where the fish are, not in a predefined pool. So the point about mandate, we do actually the services I run do have a degree of a mandate, but we don't we don't lock ourselves in style wise, right? So share advisor goes for mid to large cap, largely kind of growth oriented generally. So if I had to put a style box to use that horrible cliche around our business, that's or a service, that's what it'd be. But we've got everything. We've we've done turnarounds. We've done deep value. We've done all sorts of stuff over the years uh, where we thought there was an opportunity. So we we tend not to be too style dri- style driven. That being said, it's also important to remember to know what you're good at and what you're not good at, right? So um, Doc does a great job picking small micro cap growth stocks, much better than I do. So not only do I not do it because I don't think I'm very good at it, but there's also someone we have in our business who's much better at it. So it makes much more sense for me to say, great, let Doc do that. I'm going to focus on something else because I have a better skill set, I think, in a different type of business. And so that makes a whole lot of sense. I could try and be a resources analyst. I'd probably be really, really bad at it because I don't have an affinity for it. And to a question you answered um, about Facebook, we talked about it, Doc, I think it was last podcast, I'm not that interested in it. So me trying to learn enough to be really, really great at analyzing resources stocks, it's probably really unlikely. Uh, and so there's probably benefit of me saying, I'll stick within, as you said, mate, that circle of competence. Generally speaking though, Ajit, I'm looking for quality first. And so the, again, I say generally, in not every company in our, in our store card will match this because I go anywhere to fish, right? So this is not a this is not a, an exclusive list, it's a starting point list. So I'm looking for quality. I'm looking for quality businesses. I'm looking for quality management teams. Ideally, I'm looking for track records, decently long track records. Um, I don't tend to buy new IPOs. I don't tend to buy um, things that have been listed for a short amount of time because I want to see more of their performance as a public company. So generally, track record, some sort of quality of business management, ideally quality of business model, a reason to believe that the business can continue to be successful against its competitors and just in general over time. Now, that could be a competitive advantage around brand or location or scale or size or whatever it is. I'm looking for something that differentiates that business and gives it the best possible chance of being successful. And then when I look at paying the right price, I'm looking broadly for a couple of things, but but ideally, you know, growth covers a lot of valuation sins. So the slower it grows, the more careful, the more specific you have to be with your valuation, and frankly, the smaller the margin of error. So be mindful of that. Um, again, there's no particular peer, there's no particular growth rate, there's no particular you know price I want to pay. It depends on the business and all that kind of stuff. But I genuinely do prefer growth where I can find it, um, and I'm not prepared, not not scared to pay up for a business that's growing nicely. Some of our bigger successes in the past couple of years have been companies like Kogan that we've talked about many times on the podcast, which looked expensive the whole way through, but we could see, we thought we could see anyway, a future that had a lot more going for it because once that scale kicked in, the upside was meaningful, and I think. We've, to some degree, been rewarded for that view. Now, of course, the share price could still change, so we're not doing any victory laps. We don't do that. Uh, but generally speaking, those kind of things. So looking for growth, looking for opportunity, looking for a continuation of what's made a business successful thus far. I'll, I'll give you a flip side one. Something I try and avoid these days is making sure there's enough uh, headroom, total addressable market, as Doc would call it, simply you know, opportunity within its business to be successful. So what I've made a mistake in the past been a business like Coke that had a great brand, had a great business, really high customer loyalty, fantastic distribution, was also though completely saturated in the Australian market and really had nowhere left to grow. And so I, I, I took all the good things, I missed that one key point and that cost me and it cost our members some money. So generally speaking, I'm looking to make sure there's sufficient room for the company to continue to do well, well into the future. Doctor, that answer bring up any more questions or thoughts for you? No, I think that covers it. Very good. Let's move on to a question from Dave. Now, Dave, you almost uh, you almost didn't get your question answered and the reason why will become clearer as we go through this question, Doc. So Dave, consider yourself warned. 
You're on a final warning, mate. Another one like this, and uh, there will be trouble. Hi, fools. I would love to hear a discussion on how you research and pick stocks. With thousands of stocks here and internationally, how do you come up with the stocks you pick? For example, that Doc came up with the Catapult in a recent podcast. I mean, where's not either like that even come from? Love it, by the way. Do you pick an area of interest, i.e. fintech, and look at the players in that part of the market? Do you hear about them on the grapevine or do your own research? Do you throw a dart? <laughs> he's, he's picked us in one. I know you guys both have a lifetime of experience that guides you, but this is something I've always found hard. He finishes off and Dave, this is where you should be ashamed. I also love the tangents. Have a great one for you both. Musk is now richer than Buffett. Thank you, Dave. Dave, final warning. Any more like that and you're out. All right. Um, now, Doc, this, this kind of, the reason I threw this in here was it comes nicely on the back of Ajit's question where it wasn't so much about, you know, he was asking how we pick stocks. This is a different one from Dave, but it kind of is the same genre. This is kind of where do the ideas come from? How do we go about sort, you know, sorting through literally, you know, hundreds, a couple of thousand stocks on the ASX and try and work out which ones to buy? How do you find Catapult? How do you find that needle in the haystack and go and pick that company? So maybe some thoughts on that from you, mate. Where do you, when it comes to extreme opportunities, for example, or, or Motley Fool Pro, where do you start when it comes to trying to work out which companies are even worth looking at, let alone the process of going through and making sure they justify their position on your scorecard? You know, one of the hard things about answering this question is, <laughs> Especially doing it on the spot because we, we sort of, you know, while it's not live, but we know we don't edit these things. Correct. Is and I've actually not read this question before, um, so I don't have a prepped answer. Is some <laughs> in an honest answer? Some of the things that happen happen because um, it just happens naturally in yep. in a way that it happens subconsciously in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. And it happens subconsciously because. Um, you know, we're reading about companies, we're reading news, we're reading announcements, um, we're reading what other companies are saying, and that throws out a lot of ideas, yeah. right? So there's there's a constant flow of ideas, and, and you know, uh, so the ASX announcements, for example, right? If you spend even half a day looking at, <laughs> you know, occasionally even, not, not every day, yeah. um, uh, but you know, as, as our general manager would say, that you know, he looks at them every day. He does. Right? Uh, and, and I mean, I mean, all over the news flow. Yeah, and if you if you if you look at them every day, uh, then you would see that you some things would jump at you, yeah. right? And yeah. you know, there might be three hundred news items, but some things will jump at you, yeah. and that and that builds. I think for us, it builds a watch list. Yeah. So we, you know. If you have recommendations of 20 active recommendations, probably have a watch list of 50 odd companies at the minimum, right? New things get added to it. And then, um, you know, we would, th then, you know, it's a company would interest us and we would look at it. And, you know, mm. so Catapult, for example, would have been on the Excuse news, right? right, right, right. Catapult. You know, Catapult's um, hardware is used by sports teams. Sports is such a big deal, in yep. a, you know, in Australia, overseas. People talk about it, you notice it. And and then you know it's written maybe in AFR and you research yep. it right yep. that's that's one way that's a that's a pretty you know common way of discovering things a lot of the underfollowed under the radar things really come via as I said announcements or they come via things like screens right you run a screen and you say well which company has been going fast for and, a, and a screen is just a a fancy word for you put all the data about a company. We have some tools we use internally that yeah. the fuel provides, but you can do it with brokers. Comsec's got a, got a, a reasonably basic, but okay, one where you can literally say, show me all the companies that meet these criteria. Yeah. And that's what a screen really is, right? Yeah. And, and sometimes our screen would be a very simple screen. It might be a screen that says, you know, find me companies that have high sales growth. Yeah. Right? And, and that might actually dump a list of 
100 companies, yeah. right? And it might appear like 100 is a big list, but you know, if this is your job, then you can actually, right. you know, you can then look at what the companies are, look at even their names, look at their sectors, and yeah. that already will filter down your list to, you know, like there are certain sectors that I, you know, we tend not to touch yeah. because again, you know, like oil and gas, for example, they might have had, a, you know, um, oil and gas mining, mining explorers and things like that. Well, you know, they might have had a sales boost for some reason or the other, but it's just outside our competency, so we might not look at it. Yeah. Uh, again, when I said I might not look at it, there might be, you know, they, they, never say never. Um, <laughs> so, but, you know, so I think that's the approach, you know, right. it, it feeds in from different sources. So there's a lot of different pointers uh, that bring ideas. Yeah, that's a hard part. I mean, I've got to say, so for me, when I was, wasn't doing this for as a full-time job, I relied a lot more on the filtering of other people. So people like us, for example, or the newspaper or whatever, you kind of got to find a way. Life is opportunity cost. So whatever time you spend doing this, you're not spending doing something else. And Doc and I are lucky we have many more hours in a day to spend doing this because uh, we love it and we get paid for it and the Motley Fool wants us to do this full-time, which is awesome. We very much appreciate that. Um, so we can actually look at more companies than people who aren't doing this on a, as a day job can actually look at. But the same kind of approach applies, right? So um, I, I actually quite like Peter, uh, not Peter Lynch. What's his name? Who was the Scuttlebutt guy? What's Peter Lynch? Peter Lynch. Yeah. Peter Lynch. Uh, Peter Lynch had an approach he called Scuttlebutt. And the idea basically was it was business that he just knew about because he'd go about his life and he'd kind of just be interested in, and aware. So I'm going to just very quickly for the sake of fun of it. Um, when uh, we um, – so, so if I, I'm just going to grab the first few companies – that I'd recommended at The Motley Fool. So this is back to 2012, so I'm not giving away too much here. Some of these have already been sold since, by the way, so just be careful I'm not saying their current recommendations. Um, the business were Vocus I talked about before. Oriton Group, my wife happened to use Oriton handbags and glasses and liked Oriton. Metcash was a, is still a grocery wholesaler and I knew about that business because I'd worked in the industry before. Corporate Travel Management was an early recommendation of ours that is probably one of our better performers. Um, I found that one because I'd used it when I was working at a previous employer. Seek, everyone knew about, and I knew the business that was a very high quality business because I'd taken an interest in it, and it's you know super high value network effect business just made a whole lot of sense. So there's there's the first, and I just picked my ones for the fun of it. There's, there's the first five companies I recommended at the full. Uh, by the way, Origin did terribly uh, because the business lost the Ralph Lauren business. Metcash, I sold for a small loss uh, because it. I was expecting it to, it was never going to be a great business, but I thought it was cheap. I made a mistake on that one, sold out. And I think we still managed to save our members some money over the next eight years. Uh, but Vocus was a, went up threefold. Um, uh, corporate travel at the, is now up three and a half times and seeks up threefold in the same period of time. So, you know, those are the, that, that was just a really quick dip into the sort of businesses that, um, that you know, I recommended, we've recommended before. Um, for all different sources, all different places, but Scuttlebutt's really, really important for me. Um, also to Doc already mentioned, but the longer you spend doing this, you kind of understand the pattern recognition. Now that can be business in an industry. It can be business with certain characteristics like network effect that I've talked about. Uh, it can be the value of brands. It can be a whole lot of different ways of looking at companies and trying to find the right um, the, the right fit. You also learn what not to look at, as Doc's already said. And so you start to be able to narrow things down much more quickly. But yeah, look, no no single source, unfortunately. Uh, the paper, Scuttlebutt, other people's views. Just when, if someone says, hey, I like this company, it's often a reason to just go, well, if I like that person, I'll trust them. I'll have a look and see what they, you know, have a look at the company they mentioned. So if I see an article in the AFR about a business, I'll have another look. Um, so yeah, look, it, it is that process. And, and screens, as Doc's already mentioned, I don't use them a lot, actually, funnily enough. I tend to 
Uh, probably because share advisor our universe is much smaller because we are small, uh, sorry, medium and large businesses. There's not that many on the ASX. So um, we actually tend to know almost all of them a little bit, most of them reasonably well. And so our, our work at share advisor actually tends to be a little bit less than docs, which is like turning over lots and lots and lots of rocks. We tend to do some of that uh, for new businesses, but also just kind of updating our view on some of the bigger ones and the ones that we know well to see if there's particular value or if the share price has changed or something else has happened. Anything else on that, mate? Nothing so. Beautiful. Great question from Paul. He says, Hi, Scott. Thanks for the answers on your previous podcast. Very much appreciated. You're welcome, Paul. I hope you have a great holiday. I did. Thank you, mate. It was awesome. I expect you to burst back onto the podcast scene with more vigor than normal. I don't know. What do you reckon, Doc? Um, have I been vigorous? Uh, well, you didn't say anything about Buffett on that <laughs> one, so uh, I am saying you have low vigor right now. <laughs> not picking a fight is different from not having vigor, but we'll um, we'll park that one. There was no fight. It was a statement. <laughs> he just made a statement. I, I read it out. I read it out. Oh, man. Paul doesn't even want a question from me. A question for the doc when you have time. He says that might make you smile a little too. What are your thoughts on the Chinese Tesla? Neo, N-I-O. It's a maker of electric cars and sales are improving again after the COVID shutdown. Massive market in China and quite possibly have more government support than Tesla gets in the US. It may not be a battery energy company yet <laughs> at around $10 if, when, if it went anything like Tesla. I wouldn't like to miss out. Full on and thanks for the great pods. There you go, mate. One's for you. I can put the microphone down and go and have a, a walk around. Uh, Neo. I've never even heard of this one. I've probably not been paying attention. Do you know Neo? Yeah, I, I like I like briefly know Neo. So Neo uh, makes battery electric cars in China okay. exclusively. They have plans of I think uh, bringing those cars to um, to the US as well. Oh, wow, that'd be interesting. Uh, they they're a very small volume producer. Right. They were running into some capital difficulties not too long ago okay. so he's, he's talking about like, again just because so you know, i'll come to that the shares were had hit four dollars or something like that at one point and then they got a big infusion of capital from someone i forgot <laughs> okay. who it was um that, that gave them a big infusion of capital right and and then they've had a rebound in sales um but they're relatively small okay player. uh they actually the, the vehicle looks really nice i don't know how it is to drive right um so what are my thoughts? That's about how much I know about <laughs> Neo. Okay. Um, so uh, I looked at them as a niche small player, yeah. uh, an electric pure play. Um, won't have to do a little bit more work. I mean, it's, um, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a relatively speculative. And just because the share price is $10, it means nothing. Uh, because, I mean, uh, share price could be $1, and for it to double, it has to go to $2. Right. Um, most of it is a function of performance. Share price could be $10 and has to go to $20 for it to double. <laughs> Again, right. uh, that's a function of performance. So, let's forget about the price. Um, it's a relatively small company. And yeah, if it did anything like Tesla, then it it, it would uh, go up many fold from here. Okay. Um, but I don't own shares in uh, Neo. I've not watched it uh, carefully. And I think one of the things that Ness hit um, uh, hit upon was is this is really just an electric car maker. Right. Um, I haven't heard anything about their battery tech. Okay. I haven't, you know, so probably the, the range and all are probably not as good. Um, they are not an energy storage company and all these other things. So, so the, maybe their the optionality is limited, but I agree the Chinese market is huge. Man, I, here's a question I don't have a view to, but I, I have a suspicion. 
I mean, Tesla is Tesla great because it's an EV company, or is it a great company that happens to do EVs? And the reason I, the reason I phrase the question that way is, I don't I don't have a strong sense of how I expect the mo- the car market to to evolve, but just because a company is an EV. Does that necessarily make it worthy of investment, or, or even give it a, a leg up against Toyota or, or GM or Ford or, or Mercedes or Audi? It, it strikes me that yes, Tesla has done a really good job with EVs, and yes, at some point battery tech becomes better and cheaper than, than internal combustion engines, so the market will move that way. I I just I'm not sure whether just because Tesla's been successful at every other EV company is equally likely, and even more likely than the equivalent any other automaker in any other space. Do you have a sense of kind of how you'd handicap that that kind of concept? Yeah, so like I, I think until recently, the, the view was that traditional automakers are going to make uh, this giant transition to EVs and then, you know, Tesla will die, right? Uh, that, was, that was sort of the, the uh, let's call it the Wall Street narrative or the narrative, um, common narrative, right? Right. I think... What I think what people forget in and have you know the, the rather simplification is it's really hard for an incumbent with huge investments in plant and technology and people doing something the old school way to right. change. Yeah, yeah okay. Right. Yeah. So um, I think what we have seen is there's been a lot of EVs come out from a lot of different companies. Yeah, yeah. Right. They all propose a certain spec, then they all fail because their specs <laughs> don't. You know, they can't. Yeah, a can't, can't produce. Do it. Yeah, can't right. produce it at the spec. Right. Um, you know, and 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 a great example is if you look at the Porsche cars I mean the Porsche's yeah. uh, vehicles have um, a poorer range than a Tesla they cost three times more than a Tesla and and that's because they're conflicted right A they can't invest that much yeah. B they're further behind in the in the curve so I think so to answer your question I think a pure EV company yeah. that has a, no baggage yeah in my view, is much better placed right. in okay. in an in in the EV world okay. uh, than a non EV company. So I mean, the the other thing is that I mean, if you look, if you look, if you if you really think the way I think that you know the EVs are becoming going to be the mainstream yeah. type of automaker, which I agree with, by the way. Then I think the future for existing the Toyotas and the and okay. the other companies are re- is really bleak, okay. because they're just going to have a hard time transitioning. How do you give up your cash cow yeah. that you have now yeah. and roll out successful other um, EV platforms? Um, Maybe it's kind of the aftermath conversation we had on Friday to some degree, right? The incumbents yeah. find it much harder to deal with the innovation because it just there's, there's too much baggage. It's just too much baggage because there's so many different people pulling in so many different ways. Right. All the people who work on internal combustion engine at uh, at Toyota are going to have, uh, have, have a big problem yeah. with moving to a, a battery electric vehicle model. So I think... Uh, pure plays have a much better chance. Okay. That said, I don't know much about what New is doing to actually have a view. There's going to be there's going to be hundred EV startups, right? Ninety five which are going to fail. Like, well, absolutely. I, t- I take your point about the broad kind of Tesla versus Porsche. I get that, but at, but at some other level, if I had to go Neo versus Toyota or I, I pick it up, pick whichever other company you want to go with, it. it I mean, I. I don't know. It's one of those things. That it, it, you, some of the big traditional guys will go broke as well. By the way, I think that's true. But I. I don't know. I think if I had to handicap, you know, a, a randomly chosen EV company, a randomly chosen current car maker, with the exclusion of let's put Tesla aside because that's a different model, but the, the new kind of guys coming through, I think I still go the I think I still go the traditional automaker having a better chance of being successful, even at reduced levels, just because there are so many EV makers, most of whom aren't going to make it by definition. That almost tips the odds in my mind to, towards the current guys. 
Yeah, but I mean, I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's still very early in the game. Yeah. But I mean, the um, yeah, like I mean, which right now there is no traditional automaker. Yeah. With a with an EV that is even comparable to say a Tesla Model Three. Yeah, right. Right. So the the question for that I, know, is, I, agree, I agree with versus Tesla, but I'm just the, the the rest of them is kind of my, you know. Right, but I'm but the one I'm I'm basically pushing the question forward and saying why is that case, right? right, right. Um maybe it's too hard. Yeah. That's one answer. Yeah. Maybe there's a, a unwillingness uh, on their part. Yeah. Maybe it is the is is the various the changes, just, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, lead yeah, times yeah. that you need to make. So I I mean, yes, there's going to be like I mean there's already Fisker, there's already Nicola talking about you know right, hydrogen, right, right. Exactly. Um, and and Nicola has like you know this huge market cap without even having ever actually <laughs> made a car. So um, yeah, I don't know. Like I mean, the the, the auto market yeah. is basically in a flux yeah. right now. And if but if I if I did, if you offered me the choice of a basket of every traditional internal combustion engine car maker versus every EV maker outside Tesla. So I'm literally separating Tesla out completely. And just saying, if I had to choose, I think I take. I think I take the ICE basket, knowing that some of them will find a way. Whereas most of the EV guys will go broke. So, most, but 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 if you applied, so if I just have to apply the same algorithm of your choice algorithm, yeah. then you would have. If if we go back to 2006, 2007, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you'd put Apple aside, and you would have invested in uh, Motorola, Nokia. And God knows what else. Yeah. And your basket would have actually made no money. Um, I think. Well, I think. I think so I'm not saying I would invest in every traditional company in every traditional industry over the new guys at all. I'm not saying that. But it's, at some degree, I don't know. I mean, arguably, if you put Apple aside and invest in every new handset maker, I don't know. You probably made more money earning Nokia's, you know, kind of leftover business than every other new handset maker that subsequently went broke. I guess you know there, there is some. I mean, there is some. Again, the different examples, and I would have a different view in different industries for different reasons. I'm just thinking more broadly that. The chance that you know only one of the one or two of the big guys have got to get it right, you know, Toyota EV might be okay, and Honda and Audi go broke, or whichever combination of you know whichever group makes it through this. I don't know. I just felt there's so many EVs that now just just because they're EVs doesn't necessarily make them worth investing in any more than just because BHP's made money, we should invest in every other iron or explorer just in case they all make money. You know, it's a BHP money in iron. Let's let's invest in every iron company. I don't know. I just I find it. I find it a, a sheer number of them makes me feel like it's there's a lot of copycats, most of whom will die. I mean, that's that's there's there's yeah. I mean, that, that's probably true. Because I do think, like um, in, in ten years time, I think you know we'll have a lot more EVs, and in twenty five years time, there'll only be EVs. Like I'm not saying the the, the car the industry is definitely moving in that direction in terms of the type of vehicle. I just think every other startup who wants to become the next Tesla. Is you know the chance they actually get escape velocity is really small. I think. Yeah, like I mean, it's a, it's it's very difficult to succeed being a copycat. So, but I mean right. the, uh, I mean, there's a future to be like a Samsung, right? If somebody wants to be a Samsung, so who's the Samsung yeah, right. uh, equivalent? Is not is is not not clear to me. That's a good point. Yeah. Right. Um, the I think the other big dynamic that's playing out there, which is which is why I think a startup has a better chance. Yeah, yeah, it, I say that as well. It yeah. Is is. Um, if you, if you think that the world is moving towards um, automa- automated driving yep. and therefore fleets, yep. right, then it is quite likely that the a company that can actually have a fleet and be an automaker yeah, okay. is likely to 
succeed. Yeah, right. And that could be anyone, yeah, anyone yeah, today yeah, who yeah. has, you know, who's building that tech yeah. um, could be successful, right? So, yeah. I mean, in, in the future, if you have a fleet, so the, the thing is that the, the vehicle industry is changing dynamically in the sense that, you know, what we think today is like what 80 million cars are sold. Yeah, yeah. In the future, if you have fleet, maybe the total number of vehicles that are going to sold annually is going to drop dramatically mm-hmm. from 80 to, say, 40. Yeah, right. Okay. Right, and if the total number of sales drop that dramatically, yeah, like how yeah, many yeah, yeah. how many existing players are actually going to survive? survive right. Yeah, so point. it's yeah, a lot of things. It's it's a market in, in a lot of flux. Yeah. So I don't know. Good question though. I like it. Uh, got time for one more, mate. Let's uh, let's let's get into a question here from Craig. Now I like this one, mate, because it's it's a, it's a we talked about shorts before and we talked about kind of the way to where we think about it but Craig asked a question from a very different perspective he's hi Scott I take the view that there are lots of people in the market who are far smarter than me now don't, don't assume that Craig but let's assume it's possible for the basis of the question news of a short report really worries me and reports of financial irregularities let me spit that out cause me sleepless nights last year I bought some shares in a promising German payments company called Wirecard oh dear for about US $53 Things were going well, then I noticed the share price plummet overnight on a short report describing financial irregularities. I had a few sleepless nights and then decided to sell at 40 bucks. I then watched the share price climb back to 58. I was feeling a bit stupid and hurting from the loss. I thought all those smart people on the market wouldn't be pushing the price higher if there was anything in the short report. So I seriously think about pulling the trigger and getting back in. I got lucky this time, as the next day there were reports of fraud on a massive scale and now Wirecard is worth zero. Question for the podcast. What lessons can be learned from the Wildcard debacle? And what can we do as small shareholders to protect ourselves? Or is the occasional fraud just part of the game? He says, love the podcast, full on. P.S. Thanks for answering all my questions. And did you buy Tesla or Mercado Libre, <laughs> which we talked about a few weeks back? Um, I did reply and said I didn't do that because I'm an idiot. And uh, he did reply that shares are both up since I didn't do anything. So it's cost us off some money by um, by not paying attention to doing what I said. Although I did actually say it was your responsibility to make, remind me to buy it. So maybe you owe me money. Maybe that's what it was. I'm not going to remind you to buy Mercado no, Libre. We talked about it. You had to remind me like Tuesday or Wednesday after well, the podcast. You know, if you just bought all the stocks I told you to buy, you'd be, you know, I told you to buy Tesla. You didn't buy it. I told you to buy Apple. You didn't buy it. Uh, so I have figured now if I don't tell you to buy, maybe you'll buy it. So that's why I don't say anything. I, 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 put, you, I put you on a promise of that podcast. It make, make sure you remind me on Tuesday or Wednesday to buy Mercado Libre. Fine, I'll, I'll, I'll just buy you. Uh, I'll buy you a burger. Uh, Beyond Burger. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, buy me shares. All right. Let's say. Uh, Beyond let's, Burger is what I'm buying you. Oh, do I have to have Beyond Burger? Let's talk about that. Um, all right. So I, what I liked about this question, mate, was, I mean, Wirecard has been a spectacular, can we say it's a fraud? I think it's all pretty much, is it now legitimately so or is it still alleged fraud, blah, blah, blah? I, I, like, I mean, I've not followed that saga. I mean, the shares have pretty yeah. much collapsed. And I think the German government yeah. has declared that there is irregularities. Let's call it that, you know, the German government thinks there are irregularities. Right, okay, there you go. That, that, we say that. Yeah. So... The question for Craig is like, what do you do? And this is this is the kind of crux of it. This is why short reports are so, uh, you know, they're so impactful. They're so they're so, and frankly, for the people who do it, so profitable because they create that amount of fear. And every time there's a new short report, everyone's going to think, is this the is this the new Wirecard? The same as for a decade, we thought, is this the new Enron? Um, they stick in our minds pretty clearly, right? So, what, maybe, I don't know if you've got examples from your own um, your own background, Doc, or just general thoughts, but. Yeah, what do you do in the face of a short report? What what do you kind of how, how do you how, how do you do what Craig did, or how do you avoid doing what Craig did, whichever way you want to go with it, um, and make sure you're taking the right action? 
Yeah, so it's a, it's a difficult one. So if, the, if a short report is readily available, um, uh, and it's from a credible source. Mm-hmm. So like, I mean, there's a, there are thousands of short reports that come out <laughs> every day yeah. uh, on various platforms. So you can't really look at all of them. If a short report comes out from a credible short uh, and it's available, yeah. I actually look at it. Right, um, okay. And, uh, you know, I try to ascertain, I mean, most of the time when there is claims of financial irregularity, it is really, really hard to know who's right. Yeah. And the reason it's really hard to know who's right is this, right? Almost all companies have, you know, by def- definition, yeah. have audited reports. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, right, exactly. You know, one of the big <laughs> auditing yeah. firms, yeah. I and mean, it's not like some, you know, like wire cards, for example, must have been audited by a big auditing firm. Right, right, right. right. So a big auditing firm has audited it. Um, you know, a CFO who's, you know, has looked over it and has, you know, give their blessings, then the auditor has given their blessings, right? right. I mean, all those people are in the line in some form or the mm. other if there's a fraud. So fraud is... is Ernst & Young was the auditor, by the way, for Wirecard, apparently. Yeah, like, so, I mean, you know, like, I mean, yeah. uh, so Ernst & Young has looked at it, um, you know, the CFO has said yes, the CEO, a lot of people are in line for it. Yeah, yeah. Fraud basically often means it's such a sophisticated thing yeah, right. that it's very difficult to infer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when when people talk about financial fraud, uh, it's I find it almost hard to know whether yes or no, right? Yeah, yeah. So there are some rules of thumbs that one can apply. So I mean, um, if, the, if financial fraud actually is perhaps easier to perpetrate Mm-mm. in a financial company. Yeah. <laughs> so right. I mean I yeah. they are they are okay. black boxes, oh, right? Aren't they? Yeah. So financial services companies yep. are black boxes and yep. in if if they, yeah, so in I I try to stay away from financial services companies for that reason. <laughs> it's a good idea. Um, uh, because, again, they're not consumer product companies. A consumer product company, you can actually say, when if, if, you know, people say, oh, sales are not there. But yeah. if I can actually see, like, you know, people tell me there is no Apple's phone sales. And I can, you know, I say, oh, all those people just bought <laughs> Apple blah, blah, blah <laughs> stuff, right. right? And they've just been buying in the pandemic. So, That's you know, right. y- y- there is some sense yep. that what you're trying to cook up, or you, only thing you can say is the sales have gone down. Yeah. But you can't, you know, so, but in, you cannot say that they don't exist. Yeah. So I think those sort of things. Yeah, right. <laughs> are, the other thing that a lot of uh, short reports would allege is uh, about acquisitions and roll-ups. Because a lot of things happen there, you know, you're paying shares, to, mm. maybe you're paying shares to buy something and then you're acquiring some customers. Maybe those cu- customers have attrition. You don't know whether that attrition is happening. Yeah. You are putting things onto the balance sheet. Yeah, um, right. You know, you're capitalizing things. Um, those are harder, but there you can do some things. Like, for example... If, if it's a software company is making acquisitions, you can potentially try to see what type of acquisition has been made. Yeah. You can try to tick some boxes. Does it make sense? You know, what are they acquiring? Are they acquiring customers? Are they acquiring technology? Yeah. Uh, and things like that. Um, to Craig's point, though, man, I mean, he's saying, you know, there are smart people out there who are in theory doing this already. This is the hard part, right? Do, do we... Do we think we can do better or, or as well as those other guys or someone knows more than us so we kind of we should listen to what they're saying? Yeah, but I mean they're not always right, right? So number one thing is they're not always right. Yeah. Um and you know, it's not that they have a very high strike rate or something like that, you know, like they're always right hundred percent, right? Yeah. That's number one. Number two is that if they're wrong, um then your upside is actually pretty huge because, you know, often uh, when there's high short interest, yeah. um, it depresses share price. So, so that's that. Then the, I guess the way to think about this is 
for certain companies, I think a short report is very damning. Um, for certain companies, maybe a short report can be, you can you can rebut some of those things. If yeah, you right. can, then you can be comfortable with it. Yeah. And finally, I mean, it's part of the game, right? I mean, you're going to be wrong sometimes yeah. and that's, yeah. that's the thing, right? I mean, you know, if you're wrong four out of 10 times, that's okay. And if it's part of that is because somebody showed something and they were right, it's yeah. also okay. I mean, you know, uh, part of it maybe comes down to allocation, right? So if, if you were 30% allocated to Wirecard and Wirecard <laughs> went to zero, I mean, you've yeah. got a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have to really have very high conviction to believe that the short thesis is wrong. So, um, yeah. And, and the final thing is that if the short thesis frequently changes, yeah. then, you know, the same people who are shorting it, but the short thesis is frequently changing, that's an indication that the short thesis is weak, right? So short thesis is based on valuation, competition. Um, you know, those are weaker short thesis. Short thesis is because of fraud, probably and if there is a strong argument yeah. for it is as you know are you know so i think you have to have some qualitative judgment there i think that's right i think uh, look you kind of saw my thunder at the end mate so i've got not a whole lot to add um i think you're right look the, the the fraud stuff is very different i think if you get fraud that's a really very clear sign you should be very very careful i think that's different from revenue recognition that we talked about with the technology one on friday right which is like okay are they, are they counting the, the the dollars in the right year very different from the dollars don't exist which, which is you know, an entirely different entirely different thing um I, I, your last point was the one that I was going to I was going to touch on, mate. Is that you know, you, you, yes, it's part of the game, and in fact, that's what Craig actually asks. He basically, says, you know, is it is is the occasional fraud part of the game? Fraud, not so much, but the occasional you know, we're going to be wrong for a whole lot of reasons, and it's really funny. A psychology, I talk about psychology all the time, and it because every time I think about this, it just it becomes more and more important, right? The psychology of a bit like we, the question we had about um, about China to start the podcast. Um, you know, it's the one that everyone's thinking about. And so, you know, we think about fraud. We don't think about what if the company is badly managed? What if they make a bad acquisition? What if they do whatever? They're more likely to destroy value than a fraud, quite honestly. The frauds are the one in a thousand, one in 10,000 kind of examples. How often do we get a fraud, mate? Once every couple of years gets in the, in the mainstream media, maybe every six months, whatever the numbers are, with, with tens of thousands of companies around the, country, around the world, you know, the, the occasional one is the exception. The, the, the value is destroyed by bad management, paying too much for share prices, bad decisions, bad acquisitions, threatened competition, technological change, you know, for all of the things we worry about, fraud is one of those ones that because it's a big deal and because it's, you know, kind of right and wrong and because we're kind of taught to a few big losses, that's the one that we all talk about. And we do. You know, the I, I talked about, was it the big one? I think the the um, the the expose that was done the AFR, it was a great job by Johnny Shapiro, did a really good job of covering it. But everyone watched it like a soap opera because it was this big deal. Meanwhile, the banks lost many, many, many billions more value because I was simply over overpriced and the, and the market was cooling. And so you kind of go, you know, for all of the soap opera attention we paid to Big Arnold, for all of the wire card, this, there'll be a book and a movie written about this, I'm sure, at some point. For all of that, many, many more people are losing much, much more money on just the average stuff that we get wrong that doesn't get the headlines. And so I think to some degree, just be a little bit careful, Craig. So look, yeah, if you don't want to, if you don't own stuff, if you want to sell because you just don't want the sleepless nights, that's a great idea, by the way. That's, that's number one. I completely support that. Anyone who wants to sell because they can't sleep, do it, just do it. If you make money, you lose money, so be it. You know, yes, you feel silly if the shares go up again, but it's worth it to sleep at night. But more broadly, just be careful you don't focus on the big headline things that are low probability, high PR slash, you know, kind of headline value and miss all the other stuff. You are going to make or lose money for a million other reasons before fraud um, over the next 20, 40 years of your investing career. So, you know, yes, I get it. Yes, it's the thing that gnaws at our brains, that demands attention, uh, like capital raisings. They demand attention, right? But there's a million other things you can invest in like this one, yes, the shorts or the frauds are, are risky, but there's far, far more important things to worry about. I wouldn't obsess over it if you can avoid it. 
How's that, Doc? Fantastic. Mate, we're done. We have had a very full mailbag. The good news or the bad news, which we're going to look at it, for those who we haven't answered, I'm sorry, we haven't got all the questions. We've got so many great ones. That was just a small sampling, but a bit of a, you know what? Let's do one next Sunday. I've got to do that, right? Yeah, well, is, is that... Uh, yeah, okay. we'll do one next Sunday. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> in the meantime, mate, um, by the way, if you want to join Doc at Multifield Extreme Opportunities, you can do that by going to full com.au forward slash EO podcast. You've heard a lot about this pot in this episode about how Doc invests, the sort of things he thinks about. If you want to get some great value recommendations for a stupidly cheap price, I say every single time, I reckon you should join Extreme Opportunities. At the very, very, very worst, you'll get heaps of fantastic value for money. At the best, you also might make a bit of money too. So no promises, can't do that, not allowed to. And I never would anyway. But hey, when you've got Doc and Kevin working for you, you're in a very, very good position. Join him for a stupidly cheap price, less than a cup of coffee a week, fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. That's it, mate. But of course, listeners should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or of course, the Podcast One app. And if you like what we're doing, give us a rating, tell your friends, leave us a review, write it in the sky, get Banksy to do a bit of graffiti art featuring our logo. No, don't do that. That's No, don't do that. Banksy, don't do that. Anyway, who couldn't use a bit of foolish straight or however you find it, however you share it, Whichever way you need to, send some people our way. Help them live a more foolish and more successful financial life. Of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. You'll also get an offer for Dividend Investor and a bit of our marketing as well for our services. So you're warned. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.